sermon comes from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Several years ago, 53-year-old Jeff Murphy was hiking in Yellowstone National Park, and he disappeared. And days later, research investigators and had been looking for him, found him at the bottom of 500-foot drop. He had fallen that far and died. As they found out, he wasn't on any hike. He was actually in search of this treasure chest of gold and jewels worth up to 200 or $2 million that had been left there in the Rocky Mountains by this eccentric millionaire named Forrest Finn, who was an arts dealer. He was in his 80s, and he had self-published a memoir that included a poem that told of this treasure that was in the Rocky Mountains somewhere. NPR got a hold of this, and, and, and they said this, the ornate Romanesque box is 10 by 10 inches and weighs about 40 pounds when loaded. Forrest Finn has only revealed that it is hidden in the Rocky Mountains, somewhere between Santa Fe and the Canadian border at an elevation above 5,000 feet. It's not in a mine, a graveyard, or near a structure. Now, the tragic part of this story is that Jeff Murphy was the fourth man to die searching for this $2 million treasure. Now, you may hear that and say, that's crazy. I mean, somebody has to be pretty desperate to go on that kind of search. But it does reveal the human condition. It reveals the condition of the human heart. You may not embark on a journey like that, but you and I are born into this world on a search. And it's a search for our worth as human beings. Now, the search for worth may not have physically killed you, but it does leave you wounded. So the question becomes, if we're born into this world on a search for our worth and identity as a human being, where is it found? Where do you find your worth? Now, this search for worth is powerfully described in this story. Tower of Babel. This is actually a story. It's told here in Genesis 11, but it occurs in the middle of chapter 10. 
Noah and his three sons get off the ark after the flood, and as soon as they get off the ark, God gives them a command in chapter nine, verse one. God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So basically, two commands, multiply and fill the earth. Noah's sons begin to multiply. They have children. That's what chapter 10 is all about. And yet, right in the middle of the chapter, we find uh, the descendant of Ham. His name was Nimrod. It says that he built a city called Babel, and that is describing this city of Babel. He was the one that spearheaded this building of the city, of the Tower of Babel. And then we learn that one of Shem's descendants in chapter 10, his name was Peleg, says that he, when he was alive, the earth was divided. And that's describing exactly what happened here. In chapter 11, the earth was divided, that people were dispersed. And so what we find here is that in the middle of the multiplication of the human race, we find this little story that tells us a ton about the search for worth and where we actually find our worth. So what is the cause of this search for worth, this search for identity? Well, look at verses one to two. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now settled there is in the exact opposite of what God had commanded them to do to fill the earth. And we know that this was purposeful, that this was intentional, that they were settling in direct opposition of what God had called them to do because we, we read at the end of verse four, they say, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They didn't wanna fill the earth. They had decided they were gonna go their own way. They weren't gonna obey God. They weren't gonna obey his commands. They weren't gonna be on board with his program. They were gonna do their own thing. They had launched into a life of autonomy, a life of independence, a life of doing their own thing. They were disconnected from God. And that's what we learned, that as soon as you're disconnected from God, you have no choice but to search for worth in something or someone in the created world. Disconnected from God, which that's what sin does, which we know we're sinful at birth, which means we're born into this world on that search for worth. Think about if you're in a crowded mall and there's a family with young kids and one child gets separated from his parents and he gets lost. And finally, when the child realizes what's happened, and you may have seen this, what does that child do? Usually starts crying, but starts looking around and frantically looking for his parents, on a search for his parents. That's a picture of what we are disconnected from God. Now, we're not looking for God, but we're looking for something right, to fill that void, something to give us worth, give us identity. So if that's where the search begins, what does it actually look like? What does this search for worth and significance as a human being look like? Look at verse three. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, this was actually a brand new building practice in this time. The standard practice was to find available stone and make your building out of that, but it seems as though they, someone, had discovered this, this innovative way of producing their own building materials 
manufacturing their own building materials that could build a tower a lot taller. So what we see here is innovation. There's innovation, there's a creative new idea. Right? Now, nothing wrong with that. Right? All good so far. In fact, God's cultural mandate calls us to innovate. Take the resources of God's world, make something good that causes human flourishing and that's glorifying to God. And that's what they were doing. They were innovating. Nothing wrong at this point yet. But the question is, why were they innovating? Why? Look at verse four. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Why were they innovating? Why did they build this city? Why were they building this tower? It was to make a name for themselves. And in biblical language, that to make a name means to construct an identity. They were building this tower to construct an identity for themselves, to make a name for themselves. And what we see is that there's, there seem to be two ways that they were making a name for themselves in this passage. In verse four, first, we see, uh, the first way we see revealed in, in how they describe this tower, a tower with its top in the heavens. The word for tower comes from a Hebrew word or a Hebrew root that means to be great. So they were, they were gonna build the tallest tower in the world. This innovative, tallest tower in the world, they were gonna be great. What we see here is, is achievement, right? We see success and achievement, that that was what, they were going to chase after to build their worth, to make a name for themselves, right? To construct and create this identity of who they were. And of course, this is one of the ways that you attempt to make a name for yourself. By achievement, by success. And oftentimes this is tied to vocation. This was back in the early 2000s. This was right after the dot-com boom. And uh, there were many people that were sick and tired of working so many hours. And uh, New York Times ran an article on this. And in it, they interviewed this woman. Her name was Diane Knorr, and she was a former dot-com executive. And this is what she said. The first time I got a call way after hours from a senior manager, I remember being really flattered and thinking, wow, I'm really getting up there now. But gradually, that turned into lots of after-work hours, and it became unbearable for her. And she said, if I leave at 5 and everyone else leaves at 6.30, I might look like the one who's not pulling his weight as she struggled through this. She said in this interview, in college, she had set a goal to have a six-figure salary by age 49. And she actually met that at age 35. But this is what was striking. When she got her six-figure salary at age 35, she said this, quote, nothing happened. No balloons dropped. And she said, that's when I really became aware of that hollow feeling. It's an example, but it reveals a truth that this search for worth, this search for identity, by chasing after achievement, by chasing after success, oftentimes tied through vocation and your job, is ultimately fleeting. It's a dead end. But there's a second way that we see the people of Babel 
constructing this identity for themselves and are searching for this worth. End of verse four, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They were afraid of being scattered. They were afraid of losing that safety and losing that security that they felt when they were together in this group. They were afraid of being lonely. They were afraid of being isolated. And so they were finding their identity. They were constructing their identity by this group that they were in, in Babel. So if the first way to construct an identity, the first way to establish worth is individual success and achievement, the second way that you can establish worth and that you can construct an identity is belonging to a certain group. Right? Belonging to a certain group. These statistics were, these are several years back, but they'll give you an idea. Los Angeles Police Department released these at the time saying there were 450 active gangs in Los Angeles, consisting of over 45,000 members. They said these gangs had been operating for over 50 years, and over a two-year period, there were reported over 16,000 violent gang crimes. Author and Los Angeles high school teacher Ann Beatty, who taught these teens that belonged to these gangs, said this about the desperate drive behind this gang mentality. In gangs, people without families or without functional families find a place where they belong and are taken care of. The gang structure meets every basic need that a teenager has, food, clothing, protection, purpose, identity. For some members, to leave the gang requires a rejection of everything they consider to be themselves. Getting violence out of your life is an abstract concept, she said, but getting rid of your homies, that's real. What we learn here is that we all have a gang mentality. There's a gang mentality in every human being that says, I can construct an identity. I can create an identity. I can, I can search and build my worth by who I belong to, what group I'm a part of. So whether that's a, a sorority or a fraternity or a political club or a country club or a high-level executive leadership group or an athletic team or a theological group, now, that whole list I just named, there's nothing inherently wrong with them at all. The danger is when you start to attach your identity, your worth as a human being to that group. And you say, wait a minute, but aren't we big about belonging at Christ Church East? Aren't we big on community, community groups? The answer is yes, of course we are. But that's what an idol is. An idol is a good thing. A good thing that becomes too good. Right? A, a good thing that becomes ultimate, too important, that starts to define you. So even a community group can become an idol. You can create your sense of identity by that group you're attached to. You can build your worth that way. If you attempt to establish your worth and construct your identity by either 
individual achievement and success or by belonging to a group, then you're one failure or one rejection away from your worth falling apart. So then how do you establish your worth? Or the better question is, where do you find your worth? Now, I'm gonna say something really important here. You don't hear anything else, hear this. Worth or identity cannot be made. It cannot be made. It can only be received. Worth and identity can only be received. So how do you receive your worth? How do you receive it? Well, it doesn't start with you. Receiving your worth doesn't start with you. Look at the the middle of this story in verse five. What happens in the middle of this great building project? Verse five, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. The great hope for these people of Babel was not in them figuring out the mess they had made. It was not in them figuring out how offensive this tower was to God. It was not in them figuring out that they had launched into absolute independence and rebelled against God. No, it was in God coming down. God reinforces this fact in verse six. Look what the Lord says. Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. One language means that they were absolutely united in this idolatrous search for worth and identity apart from God. That's the one language, one confession. They were united in this rebellion against God. And then the the second phrase, nothing will be impossible for them. That simply means that apart from God intervening, there was no way they could stop this search that they would continue this search for worth. They would continue this search for identity. They would continue trying to build the tower to get it. Nothing would stop them unless God intervened. They wouldn't and couldn't stop themselves. We learn here that the heart, the heart is an idol factory. The heart is an idol factory. And you don't have the ability or the desire to shut down that factory apart from God intervening. Paul says this in Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Your only hope in the middle of this idolatrous search for worth, this idolatrous search for identity, is God coming down, is God intervening. And that's exactly what he does in this story. Verses seven to eight, Lord says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Now, a cursory read of this story might leave you thinking, wow, God, it appears as though God is threatened by their greatness, by their pursuit of greatness, by them building this tower, by them succeeding, that God's actually threatened. It can can almost read as though God's egotistical. He's almost like a, 
an insecure dictator who's going to tamp down this rebellion so that his throne isn't threatened. Listen, God's throne cannot be threatened. That's for certain. God didn't come down because he was insecure, because they were going to steal his glory. God didn't come down because he was fearful of what they could do. No, he came down in love. He came down in love to put a halt to this search for worth apart from him. He came down in love to confuse their language and to disperse them. In love, he doesn't let them finish this monumental building project. And the same is true of you and me. In love, God may have allowed you to receive your first bad performance review at work. Or in love, God may have allowed you to lose your job. Or in love, God may have allowed that relationship to come to an end. Or in love, God may have allowed you to lose that money. You say, I, that's hard to hear. Doesn't really seem like love. I mean, I hear what you're saying, that God comes down and God disrupts my search for identity and worth apart from him. He disrupts it, but he doesn't understand how painful that disruption can be. The answer is no, he does. He does. Scripture is full of this theme that starts in Genesis of God coming down. He came down to Adam and Eve in the garden. He came down to the people of Babel. He comes down in, in Genesis 28 when Jacob in a dream sees the angels of God ascending and descending on this ladder that stretched from the earth up to heaven. And then we see the fulfillment of that, of Jacob's ladder in John chapter one when Jesus says to Nathanael, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Ultimately, God came down in the person of Jesus Christ. Not to judge you, but to save you, to rescue you. He came down in Jesus not to judge your idolatrous pursuit of worth and identity apart from him. He actually came down to take that pursuit of autonomy and independence on himself and to bear judgment for it, to bear the cost for it when he died on the cross. So yes, God understands that when he disrupts your pursuit for worth, knowing that you'll never find it there, and the pain that may cause, he knows that pain well because he took it on himself in the person of Jesus. This is what sets Christianity apart from every major world religion. You know, every other religion in the world is some form of man ascending the ladder to God, climbing the ladder, earning, earning his or her way to God. And yet Christianity is unique in saying that no, God descended, God came down to rescue us. God came down to rescue you from your futile attempts to make a name for yourself. In Revelation 2.17, Jesus says, I will give you a new name. I will give you a new identity. You either get your name, 
which means you get your identity, your significance from what God has done for you, or you attempt to, to make a name by what you do for yourself. Jesus makes it clear that he gives you a new name, that he gives you an identity, that he gives you your worth. And he does this by his Holy Spirit who he sends to dwell in you. And with the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, that's the reminder of who you are. And it's that Holy Spirit that dwells in you that's the same Holy Spirit that we see in Acts chapter two reverse the Tower of Babel. So instead of different languages causing division and deconstructing community as we see in Genesis 11, in Acts chapter two, we see the Holy Spirit altering the effects of the languages to actually reconstruct the community of the church as all that were gathered heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus in their own native language. That Jesus was giving new identity to individuals that collectively would be the identity of the new community, the church. With the Holy Spirit, we hear and understand. Without the Holy Spirit, we misunderstand through our fear, through our distrust, through our self-ambition. The Holy Spirit is the one who is building the church. Just as I said, worth can't be engineered, worth can't be made, neither can unity. Unity can't be engineered. Unity is a result of the Holy Spirit's work. It can only be brought on by the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit filled with the Spirit, we hear, we understand, we sacrifice for one another, we, we become this new community. Years ago, the BBC ran an article on a renaming ceremony that took place in India with, the, with some 200 girls. And these 200 girls had all been given the name Nakusha, which means unwanted. And this renaming ceremony was the time where they were actually gonna get a unique individual name. In the BBC, they interviewed one of these girls. She was 16 years old, and she described how her parents, when she was born, she was the fourth child. The first three were girls. And so they had a fourth girl, and they named her Nakusha, which means unwanted, because they thought it would break the bad luck of them having girls, because a son in India is prized. Can you imagine growing up with a name unwanted. There's another group of people in India, they're called the Dalits, which means untouchables, which means oppressed or crushed or broken. And, and these people are at the very, very bottom of society. And they get a name, but they're forced to take on a derogatory name, like ugly or dumb or stupid. Can you imagine growing up with the name untouchable, but a more specific derogatory name. Now, you may not have grown up in a formal caste system like this that produces this, but you've, broke, you've grown up in a broken world and or a broken family, some combination of those two that at times, and maybe even currently, has you feeling unwanted or untouchable or unlovely. 
And oftentimes in that, in that place, you're left attempting to prove your worth, feeling unwanted, feeling unlovely. Oftentimes there's an attempt to search for worth and try to get that worth through overachieving. You become an overachiever. You become a, a successful person. That that's, gonna, that's how I'm going to prove I'm worth something. Or you, you begin to belong to a group. At, at any cost, I'm going to belong to this group because that's how I'm going to prove I'm worth something. How powerful it is when you realize that in Jesus, God became a Dalit. He became Nakusha. He became unwanted. He became an untouchable. That's what we read in Isaiah 53. When it says we despised him, speaking of Jesus Christ, we despised him. He had no beauty. He was one from whom mid, men hid their faces. We esteemed him not. He became nothing. He made himself nothing, as Philippians 2 says, so that he and his power could give you a new name, a new identity, holy, chosen, Beloved, let's pray. Father, we confess, all of us, that we struggle deeply with not feeling a sense of worth. We may not admit it, we may not show it, we may try to polish it on the outside, but deep down there's this sense of are we worth something? Are we significant? Father, we confess the ways we have chased after worth, chased after an identity, through achievement, through success, through work, vocation, through belonging to certain groups, whatever it may be. Father, we praise you that you left heaven, that you put on flesh in Jesus, and as we read in Philippians 2, you became nothing. Jesus, we didn't esteem you. We didn't honor you. We spit on you. We mocked you. We put you on a cross. And yet you willingly went. And you chose to, su to suffer. You chose to sacrifice your life. You chose to take on our sin, our independence, our, our autonomy, our idolatrous pursuit of worth. You took it all on yourself and bore our judgment and bore our punishment so that you could rise from the dead and give us a new name and give us a new identity that we would be chosen we would be holy, blameless, and loved in you, Christ. Thank you for your sacrifice, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.